Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Emily, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Beach Read was a memorable high note during the pandemic for me. So tell us, how did you start writing and how did you find your agent? First of all, thank you so much. I'm really happy that Beach Read could be a little bright spot in what was a really tricky time for most of us. I started writing when I was very young. I mean, I was a voracious reader, I think, as most writers were at some point. And I just basically started writing what was fan fiction, only I didn't know it was fan fiction. I didn't know fan fiction existed. I was like under the impression I was writing something very original, but it was just fully lifting things from the stories that I loved. And I did that when I was a little kid. And then I stopped writing for a big chunk of childhood and high school. And then I was going to go to college for dance. And I just on a whim applied for a writing scholarship there because I had some writing And I ended up getting the writing scholarship. And one of the requirements of that was that I had to take at least one writing class, either per semester or per year. I'm not sure which to keep the scholarship. So I got into that first class and I loved it and kept taking classes and realized, okay, this is what I really want to be doing. So I kept studying dance, but I didn't even do a dance minor. It was like writing became the forefront and dance became a thing I was doing for fun, but didn't really expect to go anywhere. And after college, I got a full-time technical writing job that I hated so much. And I would get up at five in the morning to write before I went to work while my brain was fresh, although fresh is an overstatement for my brain at 5 a.m. And I was doing that for a while and did a few different rounds of querying for different projects. And it really was just like, I think the pretty traditional route of getting on Google and being like, how do I publish book? And then finding a bunch of different agents who represented stuff similar to what I was writing and making the spreadsheets and sending out cold queries and tracking like who I've sent it to so I can nudge them after six weeks when I was just only getting passes. And then I just had a burst of energy one day while I was at my job that I hated. And I was like, you know what? I think I've cracked the code on this query for this young adult project I had that was like a contemporary fantasy. And I was like, I think that I should just test the query to see if the query is better because I think I'm really bad at querying. So I sent off one query to this agent who seemed really cool, but I didn't realize that on Query Tracker, you can see like how active agents are. And I didn't realize she was like the top most responsive agent at the time. Like she was young and hungry and yes. So she replied a couple hours later and was like, great, send me the full manuscript. I just didn't know that was going to happen. I was just trying to test out the query. So then I was like, okay, I need to query some other agents because I had this feeling right off the bat, like I'm going to end up working with this agent, but I don't want to feel like I didn't check other avenues. And so I sent off like five more queries and I ended up signing with her and that book didn't even sell, but she was just a great fit for me and very young and hungry. And then she ended up leaving agenting to focusing on her own writing. And she was like, but you know what? You should check out my agent. Taylor Haggerty. She's phenomenal. And you wrote this romance novel and I didn't really know how to sell it, but Taylor would know how to sell it. So you should take that to her and see what she thinks. 
So then Taylor was like through a personal connection that I'd made. But my first agent was fully the Google and cold query route. Yeah. I love it. That's so hopeful, though. Writers often yeah. think they need something fancier than that. For I know. I know. And that's something that I think is really heartbreaking because there are a lot of amazing writing coaches and all of that online. But I think there are a lot of people, too, who just capitalize on that, like that fear and insecurity to make money and be like, you need something special. You need these little tricks and whatever. Yes, definitely. I think that is the most common route. And I worry for writers who now think, oh, I need to go spend $10,000 on editing. Yeah. No, no, you do not. No, yeah. maybe get someone to look at your query and your right. first hundred pages. Call it a day. Agents can figure it out from there. They'll be like, use whatever you did the first hundred pages. Do it again later. I'll sign right. you. Go for it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're always looking for that little trick, that magic bullet. You're like, maybe my use of commas is too confusing. Maybe I'm not doing that right. Yeah, it's distracting if you're just putting commas in places where they don't need to be. But really, it's like if you're reading a ton and writing a ton, I do feel like you're naturally going to get to that level where an agent and an editor can figure out a lot of the minutia that you just are like, I don't get it. What is the semicolon? It's okay. That's not going to be the thing that keeps you from being published. Yeah, that's very true. And also, I feel like a lot of writers, when they're going through the editing process just for their own work before they get to the part where they're going to query or even when they're querying and they're like, OK, I've only queried five agents and all of them have passed. I need to do a whole new yeah. edit. And I'm like, it's good that you're editing, but don't edit yourself out of the book. Don't edit yourself to the point yes. where the story is completely different because you're trying to do too many things at one time to catch an agent's eye. Just stay true to your story. Yeah. And you will find the right agent. They are so terrified that if they don't get it 100% right. I was talking to a writer a couple of days ago, and I think he's on his seventh edit of his book. And he's wow. like, okay, I want to finish this edit and then I will query, but I want to make it as perfect as possible. And I'm like, you don't really want to put that kind of pressure on yourself because if you're getting with an agent nine times out of 10, the agent is going to have editing notes for yep. you. And you may <laughs> spend a couple of months editing with the agent because the agent has the actual publishing knowledge that we don't regularly see or are privy to. So they're able to help you with that. And then after your book gets signed, you're going to edit it all over again. Exactly. And I can't <laughs> even tell you how many times I have been like, this can't be right. I need to just self-impose these edits. And then when my editor sees it, like all of her notes are undoing things that I just like unnecessarily did, or I'll just over edit. And it'll be like, you really just shot from one direction to the other. And now you have to ease back. I think people think, oh, if I've had five passes, that means that the book is broken. And it's like, no, that means five people didn't want to work on this book. And there's going to be probably hundreds more who don't want to work on this book. That doesn't mean the book is broken. You just have to keep going. And then if you've had 200 passes, yeah, and they're all saying the same thing, probably there's something there. Or maybe they just don't like the setting for reasons right. we we'll realize around page 50. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I can't help but ask, you have a book about a literary agent working on a book about a literary agent that came as something of a surprise while she was at a bar. Please tell me you didn't do that to your agent. No. Okay. No, luckily I did not. So now I am really lucky to be in a situation where my agent and my editor and I all like just share one <laughs> brain. And so we'll always get on the phone before I start writing and like talk about what books are we all three most excited about of like pitches that I have basically. And so she knew the basic premise of book lovers before a single page had been written. 
And I don't remember for sure if the main character, Nora, was already a literary agent or if I was like, and I think she'll be a literary agent after the fact. But I do remember that when my agent learned that Nora had a Peloton that she was obsessed with, my agent was like, I too have a Peloton that <laughs> I am obsessed with. But she knew it wasn't her. There's a character in the book who's a really needy neurotic writer. And I think writing that in was a way to be like, this isn't about you. You're amazing. And look, here's the needy, annoying writer. That's me. All of it felt very true to life. And I really enjoyed all of those details. People think a lot about what makes a likable female protagonist, but they don't think a lot about what makes a likable male protagonist. And you have two characters who are really complicated, who we see have more layers to them. We're inside the head of this woman who, like, from the outside, everyone says is unlikable. How did you strike that balance so that your editor didn't say, oh, Nora's unlikable, no one will read this? And how did that work for your male character as well? Yeah, that's such a good point because you think about, like, Carolyn Kepnes's You series and the TV adaptations, like, people love this man who is an actual murderer. And it's fun. Like, it's fun to follow that dark, twisted character through his exploits. But I do wonder, would they buy into this in the same way if the main character was not Joe, if it was a woman? We're so easily put off by women characters, and that's upsetting to me. I personally love a woman character who makes bad decisions and just isn't perfect for me. I feel like it's a relief because I feel like in real life, you feel so much pressure to be perfect and do everything right and be generous and kind and patient all the time. And it's like fun to just see a woman who's like, no, I'm evil. <laughs> but with Nora, my editor knew from the very beginning that my goal was to take this kind of archetypal character who usually is seen as like the villain or unlikable and to try and make readers love her. And I was nervous about that the entire time. I think the reason that I ended up feeling semi-confident in it and that I think it will work at least for some people is that I go pretty deep into Nora's psyche. I love reality TV. And what I love about reality TV is you see all of these people who you would like probably never cross paths with in real life and possibly seem like we have nothing in common. We're not gonna be friends, whatever. I love when you can see those people and you get some of their backstory and you get to know them and love them. And you're like, that's so weird. We wouldn't have met and been friends. Like we wouldn't have been at the same bars. We wouldn't have been at any of the same events, whatever. But you're seeing this deep part of them that really humanizes them. And that makes you love them because you understand them. I wanted to take this type of character who are usually encouraged to root against and I wanted to figure out why she is the way she is, all the things that we judge pretty harshly, I think, as readers and viewers, or at least are like intended to sometimes from the media we consume. I just wanted to be like, okay, why does she work 24 hours a day? Why does she sleep with her email alert turned all the way up? What happened to her that shaped her and made this who she is? And I hope that makes her likable, even if she's doing things that you're put off by. Well, if anything, at first I really liked her and I noticed she kept saying she was unlikable and people were calling her unlikable. And I was like, wait, why? All of this makes complete sense. She's just a really efficient modern woman. What is the problem? And then I, and then I saw a little more. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's so interesting. I feel like I'm a kind person, but I'm not like a sweet person. And I think that's something that I've just always been aware of growing up being like, there are sweet girls who are like one thing, sweet women. 
And then there are like brash, blunt women. And I feel like I'm never trying to be blunt. And I think that when I meet some people, they're really like put off by me right away. And then I meet other people who immediately get it. And they're like, I get what's going on here. And I think that's a lot of what I poured into Nora is with the right people. She's not unlikable, but with someone who doesn't know what's going on inside of her head, they're just seeing her kind of placid smile and blunt demands. So they're going to be like, this woman is like an evil robot. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Because I definitely suffer from the same situation. And I think a lot of other women feel that same way too, especially where society is right now. When women are embracing more of themselves mm -hmm. and shedding some of these old ideas of seen and not heard, just smile all the time, even if you want to scream and strangle someone. So yeah. I, I definitely think that is something that a lot of women are going to read and be like, oh, okay, so she's like me. Yeah, I get it. I understand. But I wanted to bring in what you were saying about reality TV as a way in which we start to really sympathize with people and understand them, especially the villains. I love mm -hmm. a good villain. Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting on a female Dexter. If anybody knows of when we can get a female version of Dexter, let me know. Right. Um, Why does that <laughs> exist? Why does I that not exist? exist? It needs to exist. Um, I know about one. Hopefully we'll have good news soon. Oh, see, keep me in the loop. But what I was going to say about that is the fact that a lot of times when we're watching these shows, it's all because we can see behind the curtain mm. and we get to hear their private conversations. We get to see, especially the shows when they go in like the confessional from like right. way back in the day. And so you get to see those little moments that are private or just between two people. And it helps you sympathize with the character, understand them a lot more. And that brings us back to your dialogue. Your dialogue is extra snappy. How did you strike the balance between witty and lifelike? Oh, man. In a way, I feel like dialogue comes very naturally to me. But like you're saying, the lifelike element is something I always have to factor in because I think my tendency would be to just have two people like joking for 15 pages. And sometimes my editor will be like, OK, but he just shared something very personal and she needs to respond to it in some way. And I think that's deflection technique that a lot of us have in real life where you're like, I don't want you to feel too vulnerable. So I'm just going to breeze over this with a joke. So she's really good at pointing out when there needs to be a transition between the tones there. But one thing that I loved about writing Nora and Charlie is they are so similar that there were moments that in my previous books, I know I couldn't have gotten away with and had to remove where something bad happens and immediately one of them is like, still can't resist the impulse to whisper a little joke about it because they know that the other person would handle it that same way and it will be comforting. It won't be like offensive to them that they're making a joke about something bad that just happened. And with my earlier books, my editor would point out, okay, we need to pull back on the humor a little bit and let these characters really have this conversation they need to have with the space for the feelings and the emotions. But with this one, I noticed she's so good at her job. When I had those little moments, that's like a heart to heart, but they're still kind of like, and also oh, this little joke that I just thought of can't go unsaid. She didn't ask me to remove any of those because I think she knew that was like integral to the characters. So that was really fun to have people who specifically do handle drama and trauma in that way, because that's my go-to. If something bad happens pretty quickly, I'm like trying to figure out what's funny about it. That's like how I cope. 
Well, it's interesting. It's almost like teasing each other as their love language. It is. And I think that that's why we love enemies to lovers so much. We love people who are like having fun arguing. And I think with the two of them, that really felt like the dynamic from pretty early on. There's instant dislike, but pretty quickly they're like, oh, we're really good at arguing with each other. And it's the funniest version of arguing. They are very funny. (laughs) Can we talk about her sister for a moment? Because we've got this incredibly smart, sharp, efficient woman and her sister who is so very different, who wants to whisk her away to a town to have her own Hallmark-esque romance. Can you talk about the dynamic between the two? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The way that you phrase that question, I feel like is pulling out pieces of my thought process for it that I haven't talked about before in interviews. So that's really fun because this is my 10th thing today. So it's awesome when an interviewer is like, here's something you haven't thought of. So the differences between them, I knew that I was writing into this like Hallmark trope world. And that was what was fun to me about it from the very beginning. But then I also didn't want to go down the route of demonizing women who aren't like Nora. Like, I feel like the thing about that trope that you see over and over again, it starts to feel like the message is there's a right and wrong way to be a woman. And the right way is like, you're sweet and love baking. And the wrong way is you love high heels and your Peloton and you will answer a phone call in the dead of night. So I wanted to get justice for that character, but then I really also didn't want to go the other route where it's like, actually... (laughs) The small town baker is horrible and evil and a monster, whatever. I wanted to just have Libby, Nora's little sister, her favorite person on the planet, be totally different from her because I felt like that was the best way to really, first of all, show Nora's strengths and weaknesses because she's this hard shell for her soft, mushy sister, which I think is really a beautiful dynamic, but also show that one of them isn't right and one of them isn't wrong. Libby has two kids and a third on the way and she loves being a mom and is also very sick of being a mom and feeling all of those dynamics. And Nora's like, yeah, I never want to have kids. And I wanted both of those to be on the page and for it not to be like, there's a right and wrong version of this story. And beyond that, like the sister relationship was something I just was really excited to write. I haven't really written close sisters before and I have some really close friends who are older sisters, specifically with younger sisters like Nora and Libby. And they do have this really intense relationship where it's like, because of things they went through as kids, there has become this like parent-child relationship. But now that they're both adults, they're also best friends. And I've been able to go on a couple of different girls trips where my best friend and her little sister are there. And I've just never seen two people like be so mean to each other. And then 10 minutes later, they're laughing so hard they can't stand up and making each other pee their pants. I'm so fascinated by the intensity of that relationship. And I really wanted to try to capture that. Two people who like you can count on them to the extent that you can fight and you're never going to like lose that person. I love that they are opposites, but they love each other so much. I feel like usually there's some sort of competitive edge when people have characters like that. So it's really lovely to see them on the same page, even if they disagree about a lot of things. Yeah, I definitely have friends who it's like their sister relationship is somewhat competitive, but I also have tons who it's not that at all. And it really is like a second mother or a first mother where it's like, I am so stressed out by you and your decision making. And I have an opinion about how you should be running your life, but I'm not competing with you. I'm just like, get it together. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. That's another lifelike 
aspect yeah. of the story is because I have that relationship with my siblings. I am yes. the oldest and I have three younger siblings. My youngest sister is 16. I am oh my 33 this year. Yeah. And so my younger brother told me to my face that basically he doesn't view me as a sister. I'm basically his mom. <laughs> it's just one of those things where you know that if you and your siblings fight all the time, me and my sister underneath me fight like cats and dogs yeah. all the time, but nobody else better fight with her. You right. I mean? Exactly. Exactly. I'm fiercely protective of myself. Yeah. Even if we are like cussing each other out five right. minutes ago, yeah. nobody else better walk up and cuss at them because, exactly. you know what I mean? It's going to be a problem. <laughs> I love that so fierce. much. There's like, and there's such a short list of people who are allowed to talk about your family at all. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you see that with couples sometimes where one will like make a comment and for a fact, their partner would have said the same thing, but it's their family and they get the look that's like, don't say that about my mom in front of everyone, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love that. We can say this in this yeah. circle. You can't. You cannot. You don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. Yeah. We're going to have problems. Right. You're like, my sister is actually perfect. How dare you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing I love about this, and there are many reasons I'm going to send this book to my mom, but one of them is that she makes such a good argument for why being single makes sense. And I haven't really seen a character do that before because I feel like a lot of the characters are pressured to go toward that more traditional narrative. And yet here's this incredibly smart woman laying out all these reasons that make so much sense. Yeah. Can you talk well, more about that and how everyone reacted to it editorially? Sure. Well, I think that was really the big obstacle because when you're trying to make a romance that feels somewhat true to real life, you're like, okay, we're not going to probably have this big reveal where it's you were posing as your twin this whole time and now I have to get over the betrayal of that and can we find love and make it work again? It's like you need the real life drama, the real life things that keep people apart. And for Nora, she does have a lot of reasons why being single would make sense. And it's stuff she witnessed with her mom. It's stuff she's experienced herself. It's stuff she's watched happen with her friends. And that's like a real obstacle to meet someone and be like, okay, I am wild about you, but that doesn't change the huge risk that starting a relationship is and the huge risk that falling in love is. There's a lot to lose. And if you're pretty happy and comfortable in your life, like it's going to take something pretty serious to make you outbend that. And I will say that part was really fun for me to write because I have a couple of friends who gotten into like pandemic relationships that were fast tracked and now they're like a sweet old married couple but I have friends who really had gotten to the point where they'd been doing like the horrible painful tinder dating for like 10 years or however long tinder has been around and finally got to the point where they were like wait a second my life is great all of my exes have been horrible and I didn't see it right off the bat do I really even want to be dating? Because you only really want to be dating if someone's going to make your already great life even better. If they're not, it's like a whole lot of work. And now you also have like commitments and obligations and all of that. Yeah, I mean, that was fun to write for Nora that she would be okay without Charlie. And I think that was like a thing that isn't often said in romance novels that like we could be okay without each other. We could survive without each other. Don't want to, but we could. And I feel like that has to be how you live your life. It's painful to think about being without my spouse, but I would need to find a way for that to be okay and to be satisfied with myself. But it's so funny because it's like I'm writing a romance novel. Of course, I want them to have a happy ending. I want them to wind up together, but I do feel like they're the first characters I've written who are very adult in the way they approach it, where they're like, yes, I might be in love with you. Should we date? Here are the reasons why and why not. Yeah, I love the moment where she asks him if he has a checklist and he's like, I'm not an animal. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because they're so similar. And I also love that. I'm glad you liked that moment. Very much. My whole book is full of highlights of things I liked, but take up the whole time if I just read them on here. Maybe I'll add some later. But I think that's actually the very best place to put a character who is okay without a romance is in a romance novel. Yeah. Those are the readers who need to know the alternatives. Yeah, that's really true. A lot of my books are really trying to get a character ready for a relationship. It's like, let's do some therapy. But I also feel like it's fun to start with two people who know themselves pretty well and be like, okay, you're actually ready to go. There are a few more kinks you have to work out, but like you're ready to be together. Again, I find that more to the lifelike aspect of the story because I read a lot of romance. Honestly, that's my main genre. (laughs) Me too. It's it's mostly like, I can't live without you. What do I do without you? You live. You'd live, you'd have to. You'd live. Yeah, like, that's and what like, you would do. Right. And I love that. those. I really do love those. I love the historical romance novel where it's like, it's been 10 years and I've never loved another and I'm still heartbroken. I love those. But in real life, if you were friends with that person, you'd be like, please move on. I am begging you to move on. Do something for yourself. Make yourself happy. So one thing you said is that writers should write the book only they can write. And I agree. But could you say more about that? Well, Beach Read, I think, is a good example because... When I started the process of trying to sell that book, it was funny. There were some people who were like, okay, this is too insider baseball with all the publishing stuff. And there were some people who were like, this cult subplot is really weird. We can't have that in a romance novel. But it was like just all of these things I was thinking about and interested in tied up together. And it's really strange to be like, this felt like a very specific to me thing, but clearly it had a wider appeal. And that's not a guarantee. I also have things that I've written that felt so personal and specific to me that nobody got or liked. And that happens. But I do think writing is a weird thing because it's both art and commerce. It is a business, but you should, I think, balance those two things. For me, writing feels like a kind of alchemy where it's like you're doing this one thing and it's like a very literal thing. You're sitting in a keyboard typing and the book will be printed and put in stores. But I also feel like just by telling your story, you are somehow changing the world. And I don't really know how to explain that. Like kind of woo woo, but that's how I feel. You're doing alchemy. You're like putting magic into the world by sharing what's really on your heart. So a lot of that I think is just about personal fulfillment. Like I think for writers, you should tell the story only you can tell because you don't have any guarantees that you're gonna make this book happen in any major commercial way. You just need to be happy with it. You don't have control over anything other than whether you're happy with your book. And I feel like that's where your energy and time has to go. What general advice do you have for all the writers out there who are listening? I just don't want people to get discouraged. That's the big thing. We've all been there. It is hard. It feels so personal, all of that rejection. But I've really come to think of rejection as something that has to be just checked off the list. It's a part of it. And if you don't take it as anything other than a badge of honor, step forward closer to where you want to be. That's, I feel like the best way to approach it. It's like, you just have to rack up those rejections to get to the yes. And everybody's been there. And I imagine you had no idea this wild level of success was coming. No, I still don't feel like I really understand or experience it. But you don't have control over that again. So it's like, you just have to write what you're excited about and the right people will hopefully find it. We'd love to give away a copy of your book. Can you give us a code word that someone can email us and we will send them a copy? Let's do code words, plural, Moonlight Swim. 
<laughs> Excellent. Okay, so the first person to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with Moonlight Swim in the subject line will get a copy from us. Emily, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you yes, so much for you. having me. It was so great to meet both of you. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.